0: hello everyone welcome to the stairway to ceo podcast brought to you by future commerce i'm your host lee green and it's my mission to bring you a real honest and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life we'll talk about their climb to the top their stumbles along the way and the steps they took to get them to where they are so tune in to get inspired listen to some real talk and enjoy the show
1: Welcome to episode 19 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I sat down with Jordan England, the founder and CEO of Industry West. Founded in 2011 with his wife, Anne, Industry West is the leading e commerce furniture retailer, offering highly curated contemporary furniture and home accessories for residential and commercial spaces. Industry West Furniture is a favorite within the startup and tech community, furnishing workspaces for companies such as Google, Facebook, Airbnb, Untuckit, Booking.com, and Breather. In this episode, Jordan shares with us how he went from working in real estate and economic development to starting Industry West with only $288. We dive into how he bootstrapped his company and built a long-term, sustainable, multi-million dollar business without any capital from investors. You can subscribe to the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Jordan, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story in building Industry West. How are you?
2: I'm great. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Look forward to talking.
1: Yes. I'm really excited about this interview. Um, let's get started. Where are you from originally?
2: So I am from, um, well, I was born in Pennsylvania, in central Pennsylvania. Uh, but my family moved to Hilton Head Island, South Carolina in the early 80s when I was a couple years old. So um, that's where I say I'm from. So a little little island uh, on the coast.
1: So you grew up in South Carolina. How was yeah. that for you? How was childhood?
2: Um. I would say, uh, fairly idyllic, uh, growing up in a little resort, uh, golf course community, um, back in the early eighties, not much going on other than, uh, the beach and, and, uh, golf. And we had to go to Savannah, Georgia to pick up groceries and stuff in the early years. So it was, uh, it was a little different, but, um, certainly, certainly a lot of fun and, uh, afford a lot of opportunities to experience things. A lot of other folks don't get to do. So
1: did you have any siblings growing up?
2: I did. I'm in the middle of uh, of two boys, so there's three of us. We're a couple years apart each. So, all right. Yeah.
1: And what about your parents? What did they do? Were they entrepreneurs at all? Uh,
2: I, not not really. I mean, my uh, my dad was a physician, um, uh, and my mom, I guess, uh, was the one that made sure that his uh, his practice was running and uh, and profitable. So maybe I would say that uh, she had a little bit of that bent in and, uh, and her, uh, her person, but uh, but yeah. But nobody was really, uh, I would say, an entrepreneur in the truest sense of the word. And what about you as a kid? Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Everything, I think. At some point in time, I was certainly like always looking for opportunities to um, to try new things and to 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 find work in some way. Uh, I, I was the kid that was like, you know, the the one I'd stand that like would get kicked off the golf course and then like would sit up behind the tree on the next hole and like pop out and like, you know, move, move it around and, uh, from, from an early age. So I was always trying to like kind of, uh, I guess, hustle, try to, to make some money and just try to things like that.
1: What were you trying to sell when you were popping out from behind this tree? Well, you know, we'd go in, in
2: like, this is a, a private golf course. So like we, I'd set up like a, a lemonade stand and make cookies. and You know, the ranger would come by and be like, this is against the, the rules and regulations under bylaws section. I'm like, six man. out of you know, like I, so they just kicked me off and I'd, uh, I guess I'd break the rules and, um, find a new spot. And, uh, eventually Try it again. once they, they brought the handcuffs out, maybe I would I'd go back home, but, uh, did they ever bring out the handcuffs? Um, fortunately no. Uh, <laughs> otherwise things might've turned out differently for me, <laughs> but so I always had, I had a lot of, lot of jobs from, you know, from, from, I don't want to call that a job, but always, you know, in early, you know, teens and, and and throughout there I uh, was always trying to find things to do and to make make a buck
1: and where did that come from why did you want to make money so early as a kid um
2: I just think I like the freedom of of being able to do your own thing and so you know I remember the first you know going out when I was back then you could get a license at 14 and you know I'm gonna go out on with the, the guys uh or you know down to you know, Harbourtown or wherever down the island and You know, I had my own money to go down and buy whatever I bought back then, public home and baseball cars. I don't really remember. Um, I certainly uh, enjoyed that and kind of kept parlaying that into whatever else I did in the future. So um, I just, that's something that's, um, you know, uh, it's it's something about the freedom that that affords you to to do things uh, you want to do.
1: Did you go to college?
2: I did. I went to, I started at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, um, but finished at uh, Emory University in, in Atlanta, Georgia. History, all right. History, political science major. So, putting putting those to good use now. But uh, all
1: right. Yeah. Did you have any internships while you were in school, I or part time jobs or full time jobs? I,
2: did. I, I, worked, I I worked through school. Um, tables, bartending. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would I would definitely was that kid that was, uh you know getting. A, we were arranging the schedule around when I had to be at work and then um you know working till two or three in the morning and then getting up for the eight o'clock class and sleeping maybe whenever I got a chance to do it. Um so so yeah, definitely had to help support myself a bit through through school.
1: Lots of hustle. So then when you graduated, what was your first job?
2: Yeah, so I had a friend that um I didn't really know what I wanted to do. At one point I was pre med and then I was pre law. And then I was pre something else, and then I had a friend that was uh, working for a, a real estate developer in North Carolina, and he said, "You need to come up here and you know do this." This is back in the real estate boom of 2000, and, you know, this was 2003. So I went up there and in, got a position as an assistant. Uh, quickly became a, a sales, you know, sales executive or associate or whatever it was called, and uh, was able to, to find some success in that for a couple years and ride that wave try to pay off some student loans. Had My wife and I go way back to our, you know, I was 14 or 15 years old. So we've known each other for now 25 years. Oh my gosh. uh, Wait,
1: how did you guys meet?
2: So we met on a church youth mission event on Hilton Head back in 1995. So how old were you guys? I was 14 and she was 16.
1: Oh my gosh. You met your wife at
2: 14 years old. Yeah. But we weren't part of a cult no, right I'm going to <laughs> get I'm gonna so get you hammered. were part of
1: a cult <laughs> yeah we were part
2: of a cult and uh no we uh we just our churches she was from Texas and we just connected and then um stayed in touch and then reconnected when we were in college so um ended up getting married in 2005 and uh so so yeah so we were um in real estate for for a few years i was doing that until 2000 and uh 2007 And so I think we all know what happened then and, uh, spent a year in economic development for a public private partnership between a couple of counties and below country of South Carolina. And then kind of out of that difficult economy is kind of where the business idea was kind of formed.
1: Well, that's great. And that's really interesting because we're kind of, uh, you know, obviously with COVID in a tough time now. So I'm really excited to dive into how you started your company during a tough time, but I want to first hear what were some of the challenges you faced in your first couple jobs
2: there in real estate? first couple of jobs in real estate, some of the challenges, I, I think one of the challenges was that I didn't really like it. So <laughs> um, I didn't enjoy, I just didn't enjoy selling real estate. And that's what I was doing. So I, I know that a lot of people get the advice of like, don't, you don't have to love what you do. But I would certainly say that there were days that I didn't want to go to work, despite the fact that the money was pretty good.
1: Is that why you went into it in the first place was because you knew money would be good?
2: I knew money would be good if you were successful at it. And mm-hmm. I had, like I said, some student debt. And I mean, it, Especially when you're 22, 23, if you don't have like a long-term plan and a path towards whatever a career path looks like, even for today's um, uh-huh. your generation, um, it's that if someone says, hey, you come up here and you know that you're good at have a certain skill set that fits that job description, maybe you can make it work. And there is some fulfillment in that to a point. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about that. And there's been a lot of studies on happiness, you know, associated with income, especially income levels. So that was really nice. But I definitely found myself like, I want to get out of this. I don't really like doing this it just seemed like groundhog day every day. And the only challenge was, uh, challenges were kind of just maybe somebody didn't buy the real estate that day you were showing them. So, I mean, that's, um, I think it's a, it it can be a great profession and I still have a lot of friends that do it and, um, they love doing it and that's why they're still so good at it and, and, um, in that career. So, but for me, it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be.
1: Yeah. What kind of uh, takeaways or learnings did you gain from that experience that helped you in industry West? I
2: think, um, Self motivation. I think there's a lot that's in that industry that that you really are your your independent contractor. You're responsible for your own reign for the most part. I think marketing executives and real estate firms would probably disagree, but you know, I think that there's something about like getting getting up and getting it done and um, doing it again the next day. I think this work ethic and and the ability. I think anybody who's done sales at some point in their life, um, some people are just they just have it. Whatever it might be. A lot of times it is your ability to kind of really communicate with people in a way that they can understand mm-hmm. um, that make them comfortable trusting you and making a decision both good for you. And then going to be good for you as selling the product as well. But I think, you know, it's all about trust and authenticity. And I think that a lot of that has to do with just the person you are. I don't know that there's, I've seen people try to fake it and it doesn't usually go off very well, but those would be a couple of the things that um, I think were kind of reinforced during this period. I would say that a lot of those skill sets were actually, Ingrained in me before I even had those jobs. A lot of it is, you know, you hear a lot of the, you know, the parents these days that are my age, like, like, you know, when I was your age, I used to this, and then when my parents, but they're like, you know, the horse farms, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some shoots that, right? So like every day, like now, like the kids are all on iPads, and iPhones, and my kids are older right. than in that. So yeah, yeah. you know, old-fashioned work ethic and so
1: where did your work ethic come from as a kid? Because you had so many of these different, you were always out there trying to sell something, right? So are you saying that that was key? And your learnings kind of came more from that in childhood. And that kind of carried you through to where you are now.
2: When you talk to people about success or motivation, a lot of times, uh, they, they always talk about like a, something difficult and then seeing the results of their work. Like you don't hear a lot of people talk about like something that came to them so easily. I think there's something about like having a task in front of you that's difficult and daunting, achieving it or failing at it and then seeing why you failed. But, you know, when you achieve it you can push through it. And you look back and think like, wow, that changed me as a person that is incredibly rewarding. Let's go do it again. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that whether it be trying, like I sold bookstore to door one summer in college, and that was awful. You've probably heard people that have done that, but it was really rewarding because at the end of the summer, it was successful. And um, I was able to look back and think of some things i would learned and how I had changed as an individual um, through that process. So mm-hmm. that's probably something early on that was just kind of through trial and error and, and failure and success.
0: Hey, real quick, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Future Commerce Insiders. Insiders is a weekly newsletter that brings you the information you need at the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and commerce. If you're a tech founder or an operator at an e-commerce brand, Insiders is purpose-built just for you. Commerce connects all of us, and entrepreneurship gives anyone the opportunity for economic advancement. So, commerce entrepreneurship has the ability to change the world. Want to join us? Do it right now at FutureCommerce.fm. That's FutureCommerce.fm. So it's two thousand seven, two thousand eight. The recession is hit,
1: and you are now thinking, "I got to get out of this real estate stuff. This is not for me anymore." Um, and the economy is not really for real estate anymore either. So, what? Uh, where'd you go from there? What happened? How did you come up with the idea for Industry West?
2: Yeah. So, um, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. I took a job with, uh, like I mentioned, uh, an economic development agency in Beaver County in South Carolina and real estate, working with like GIS systems and helping in that organization. And I had just kind of developed a... I had always had an interest in interior design and furniture and architecture and space and travel as well. And so my wife and I were nearly married after a couple of years and we were just looking for product for our home and, you know, we subscribed to like El Decor and Architectural Digest and this is before the proliferation of design blogs and social media. So, you know, we, I had heard of uh, Alibaba and we were looking around for some like industrial furniture was really trendy at the time. And there were some, you know, a few companies that were doing a couple of different things, but there was nobody that was doing it at a price point that was approachable. And so I ended up, Reaching out to several factories, manufacturers overseas, ended up connecting with a gentleman, a young guy who had just bought a factory from um, another person you've been working for for a few years, shared a similar aesthetic. I uh, had some samples made, ordered up a few, and listed them on eBay. And somebody in like Park Avenue bought them for like way more than I'd paid. And I was like, this is simple math, you know, this is what it costs. And I mean, I really didn't have a lot of, I had no business background. I mean, I had no other than, managing my own checkbook and, you know, helping people close land deals and things like that. So, so I just kind of started doing it on the side and it just kind of happened. And I was, you know, still had a full-time job and I happened to be laid off actually. So mm. the organization got lost its funding and I was the last employee. And so it was, you know, LIFO in first out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had been doing this for like three months on the side.
1: So you wanted these chairs for yourself, right? But then you said you listed them on eBay. Why would you do that if you wanted chairs for your home?
2: Because the I saw an opportunity in the marketplace for something that didn't exist. And at the time, this is 2009, I mean, there was not... I think Wayfair was maybe six years old, but it wasn't Wayfair at the time. It was like a collection of websites. You had all the legacy brands, Pottery Barn, Restoration Hardware that were not investing in digital at the time in ways that they are now there wasn't there really i don't know of other pure play digital e-commerce furniture brands that were in existence at the time but i it's not like i went out and did like a a market study and developed a business plan and this was literally like if i keep this small for now i can grow organically Uh, i didn't know anything about venture capital i didn't know anything about i had some friends working on wall street so i understood a little bit about a little bit about it but it wasn't like i had this idea that would probably go out and get funding for i said hey you know i went to my wife and we talked about it said if i can make as much money doing this in the next, I think we said 90 days, maybe there's a business opportunity here. So let's try it on eBay for like a month. And I was like, I don't like having to rely on a third party to control my marketplace. So hired um, a young guy from uh, Charleston that was running a digital magazine up there to build a website for me on Drupal. So I paid him, uh, I think $2,000. And he was also an amateur photographer. So he came down and we we had like, I had like eight SKUs and like, he photographed everything. We built this website and this is like after 45 days and I, we launched it and I went out and read like a bunch of blogs or information on like Google AdWords, started, you know, bidding on a few things. This is the first like 24 hours. And all of a sudden, and at the time I was like, you know, commercial or you know, uh, uh, industrial chair. And it was like, it was five cents a click or something like that. It was just something stupid. And, um, uh, like, within the first, like, at a band, I was in this little band at the time, and I was like there, and my phone starts pinging. Like, what is this? $680? Like, every, and it was happening like every like three minutes, people started. And then I was like, and then it became like, wow, there's maybe something to this. And I, put a, I had to put a phone number up there because I felt like at, at the beginning, customer service was still tantamount to like business one on one. Like, you've got to talk to somebody, hear their problems, offer them a solution, take good care of them. And so I felt like you need to be able to, communicate. And I mean, you know, just like every other business that that um, takes good care of their customers. And so really quickly, the phone started ringing, people wanted more than, than we were able to provide. So that was kind of exciting. And I remember sketching down a piece of paper, like the first week of the website launch, like, if we can double our sales every six months after one year, we'll do $600,000 in sales or something like that. Um, but even then, I never dreamed that we would get to the point that we are now. So but that's kind of how things kind of emerge. And it, it, the timing was was really good. And I'm not wanting to conflate luck with skill. So, And so um, you know, I was very lucky to be in this industry at the time that we were and the marketplace the way that it was. What percentage do you think is luck versus skill? I think you have exceptional entrepreneurs out there that mm-hmm. are not only skilled, but they have vision that is, they can see like, not just a year in the future, but can make calculated bet bets and plays on things that are 10, 15, 20 years down the road or longer. And I think that those people are far and few between. I think that when you look at most companies that you would call successful, I think it's 90% or more luck. I really, I mean, I think hard work goes hard work and people who like make your own luck. And there's a lot of sayings out there, but I think Mm -hmm. a lot of things just, I don't want to like take the credit for things for, for, for being in the right place at the right time. I think that has a lot to do with it.
1: So is it more timing than luck?
2: I think timing is luck. So The same thing. Yeah.
1: Similar. Okay.
2: You can't just sit around. You have to work hard. I mean, there's, you know. Yeah. But but I do think that, uh, I mean, if I tried to do the same thing, that story doesn't happen today. Why not? Uh, Because uh, there's market saturation for um, e-commerce companies. There's costs acquisition costs that are astronomical compared to, uh, even if you adjust them for inflation compared to 10 years ago, there's changing customer tastes and ideas around, goods and ownership and just there's billions of dollars more and uh, money being thrown at concepts that are unproven. So I just don't think that that, that story is. Try to go to Silicon Valley right now and raise money for an e-commerce startup. And I think you'd hear crickets.
1: <laughs> so what, um, you know, when you, in the early days of starting Industry West, what were some of the things that you
2: learned early on? I think one of the things that I've, I've always done, and this is I don't know, is to say, to try to say yes to everything you can uh, early on. And I still, to this day, have trained a lot of our staff, like, don't, I mean, don't say yes to something that's just outrageous. I mean, if someone says like, I'd like to buy a bunch, 10 Porsches from you, like, um, don't say yes to that. But like, and and that would equate to like, somebody needs like 50,000 sofas in two weeks, like we can't fulfill that. But for the most part, outside of something crazy like that, like, say yes and let's figure it out let's try to make it work let's try to take good care of the customer and communicate well and um, i said so i think from early like even though something seemed impossible i tried to say yes to it but also to temper the expectations around hey yes we can do that but there are a lot of things that are out of like, our control in the supply chain or along the line so you know maybe we don't guarantee things but we're going to do our damn best to yeah. make it happen and we still do that today
1: that brings me to when we were speaking earlier, you were mentioning in 2009, when you launched the website, you got a phone call and the guy wanted 90 bar stools, right? When we were talking a little bit about how you hate the phrase, fake it till you make it. But really, you know, it's, it's about kind of appearing maybe a little bigger than you are early on. Can you kind of go into, you know, how it was on that phone call and, and what you did early on?
2: Yeah, no, I think it's a good phrase. The only reason I, I tend not to use it is because I had a boss one time that used it a lot and we didn't see eye to eye. So... <laughs> there's that but yeah no i think i, I remember i was in uh, early real estate days i was i had a higher up it was like a very high up at, at ibm that was buying some real estate and uh the the whole process with his team at ibm and like the whole uh, trying to get the deal closed and get them with, with their with their team there it was like the worst possible experience i would ever had and i could not believe that a company that's fortune 500 would operate in a way with their executive team and this not to throw anybody IBM under the bus, but I was just like, what is this? And and I'm stuck with me at that time, like, you know what? Does anybody really have their shit together the way that they think they do? Yeah. So from then on, I was like, why should somebody need to know that from day one it's just me and in, in a living room with a 40 square foot shed in my backyard? And so if somebody calls and asks me, can I get them 90 bar stools? Yes, I absolutely can. And then after that time, the next time, it was like, we, we do that all the time. That you know, it was and so it's the projection of, of being able to, to make good on your promises. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think people need to understand that there's nothing wrong with people not understanding the size of your business, what difference does it make? And so from the early on early days, it's like you wanted people to trust that you're going to take care of them and to fulfill the, their requests and, and their orders. And as long as you started to, to to do that on a frequent basis over and over again, then you're not really faking it. You're just doing what you said you're going to do. So... But for for other entrepreneurs, we talk about this, but, you know, it it, it is important to project that you're able to get it done. Yeah. Just a little bit of confidence and and know-how.
1: So when you first started out, you were like, I'm going to try this for 90 days. Were you thinking if this doesn't work after 90 days, I'm just going to do something else? Or were you, did you have a revenue number in mind? Like what was the, you know, measure of success that you were using for 90 days? I
2: actually knew it would work, honestly. <laughs> so that sounds like you
1: were just telling your wife that, so she would feel
2: better. That. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. She'll hear this and be like, "You know what? That's fine. It's fine now." But I mean, because I mean, if you if you keep things, and this is the same thing. This is no different for a company that's just raised fifty million dollars from some VC and me with probably at the time less than five thousand dollars in my bank, probably less than a thousand dollars in my bank account. But like, it's you know, your runway. They talk about runway all the time. Like, I knew that I could keep my runway so long because it was just me and I was. I was driving trucks, I was taking cheap flights and then unloading containers. In that couple of orders, I, I flew to New York, rented a Penske, drove through downtown Manhattan, backed the truck up, paid a guy 50 bucks at the Port of Elizabeth, New Jersey, backed everything from a 20th container into a truck, drove it to Pittsburgh to deliver some furniture to save like 500 bucks. So I knew that if you could keep that runway long by keeping your costs down, then I mean, you could prove the concept pretty quickly, prove you know, product market fit that like, we could make it work. So that's where it goes back to.
1: And so building a team, can you tell us about you know, the culture of your company and how you went about building culture?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's so much written and talked about when it comes to company culture. I think when companies that are our size, which is less than 50 people, I think, and probably even up to a few hundred people, I mean, the culture is really defined by me and my work ethic and my team and my attitude and my my wife too is, is you know like i said for the last three years she's been full-time here so her personality and attitude and work ethic also defines that so i think that that's like if you hire people that want to follow you like you're in charge of that and like they kind of like fall in line and you end up like finding people that fit in more easily than others i will say that early on like it just maybe i'm changing up a little bit just like hiring we did look for culture fit that like people we wanted to be around and work with. And so I think that we hire for that as much as, as anything else, maybe at times in the past to a fault, like we, we were like, we'd like to work together, but maybe it wasn't the best skill set fit or, you know, we've had some, some struggles or growing pains along that. Like most companies have been around as long as we have. So, but um, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely cultures determined by the owners of the business or the, the CEO, founder of the company at our size.
1: So you started the company with $288, right? That's the, that's the number, maybe yeah. <laughs> 50 cents
2: a framed, uh, copy of the invoice somewhere.
1: <laughs> and those were for the original what four chairs that you, and then sold on eBay.
2: Right. So we did that and we bought like 16 and then we sold those. And then, you know, just kept, um, I don't think I took a salary for a couple of years. Wow. I would take a distribution or whatever. And we had to pay rent. My wife was continuing she was working through that time, so we really just lived up for her salary, which you know I hear that from so many startup entrepreneurs that don't have funding, you know, which is like it's like one spouse is in charge of like paying the bills, and the other one's like trying to work ninety hours a week to make it work,
1: yeah. so you have quite an impressive bootstrapping story. A lot of businesses, I feel like, you know everyone tries to go out for the venture funding. What are some of the pros and cons that you've experienced in not taking any investor capital?
2: Yeah, I think. You know, the pros are pretty obvious is that, you know, we own a hundred percent of the business and we can make decisions on a daily basis, no matter what it is, we are the bosses. And we like to joke that like our, our kids are really the boss, but, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably the biggest thing. And, 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 you know, no one's barking down our thro- throat and necks and telling us do this or do that, or, you know, we can, we can just pivot more quickly and, and be a little bit more nimble and agile. I would say that the cons are also pretty clear that, uh, there have been a lot of times in the last few years that we would love to have access to a lot of capital. But you know we've tried to be disciplined around our growth models. And we've always remained that uh, there's no reason that growth and profitability can't go hand in hand. And so we've always made sure that every dollar we're spending has a return on it. And uh, we can clearly track those those dollars and where they, where they should go. I think I think the really good CEOs and founders tend to look at things like bootstrap company themselves because they want to make things go as long as possible to capture market share and scale and not waste but like you mentioned earlier like the the hiring 40 people and firing 20 then hiring 60 then firing 30 we haven't had to deal with any of that but we have certainly been times we had to get more creative with expansion and at our scale now we're able to do some things that you typically would need a you know vc firm to to help you uh um, our expansion to our 1st book broker-mortar store in New York last year was capital-intensive, and we were in the process of doing the same thing in Los Angeles in February, which, fortunately, uh, the negotiations on the on the building fell apart at the uh, 11th hour, which was also lucky, I think, <laughs> given, yeah. given this year. So, yeah, those are a few of the things. I do think one of the things that's important, though, you know, one thing good venture capital can help with is certainly – sometimes that advice is helpful. I mean, they've been around, they've seen a lot more companies succeed and fail than I have. Um, so I think as a pitch up company, it's important to have a network of people that can kind of serve as, you know, advisory counsel for you and help with feedback along the ways because it's certainly a lonely journey as you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what are some of the struggles that you, or challenges you faced in building your business and your, when did you feel most defeated and how did you get back on your feet?
2: You know, I, I'm a pretty optimistic person and I don't want to say that we haven't had any struggles. Um, I, I would say that up to, I mean, some of the struggles have been like when I wanted to do in the past, in the last decade, it's been things I wanted to do. And you know, my CMO or COO will be like, Jordan, that's great. We cannot afford to do that. <laughs> like, what do you mean? We'll just, we'll sell more furniture and we'll, we'll make it happen. And like, that's, that's always been my attitude. And then, and so some of the struggles have been trying to get creative around expanding into new, whether it be new product lines or uh, piloting uh, marketing programs or hiring people to, to aid in, in growth and, and, and the, uh, the business. The other side of that is that, you know, where I don't look back and uh, until this year, I would have had a harder time answering that question. I think this year it's been for companies like ours and, and so, so many companies has been like the perfect storm of confluence of, of really negative forces and things happening in the world, in the marketplace, it's like, I try not to watch the news too much because it's just, it's awfully depressing and it's not, it's not great for the, the mental health, but yeah, this year has been super challenging and we're very fortunate in that we're an e-commerce brand and and a vertical this year that has been still maintaining some, I don't even want to say growth. I just want to say like, it's been open. We're open, you know, Yeah, (laughs) that's been positive. But, but when you, when you come, um, Compound like the the Trump tariffs because we we're we're in twenty countries. So, China was our first country that we operated in manufacturing wise. Um, we have a big presence in Romania, Vietnam, Thailand, uh, Belgium, all, all over the place. So, but the Trump tariffs have been a super strain on our profitability since last year, and this year it's continued. Um, when you factor in the the challenges and planning around that, and we we're paying you know millions of dollars a year in tariffs right now. So. That's been a real hard thing that we never kind of foresaw last year. Uh, but this year with the pandemic and the closure of our, our New York store and maintaining the rents there and the payroll, we've had to just get creative around our product mix. And uh, that's changed really quickly. So we've had to try to to, to listen to our customers and um, make sure that we were able to provide. You know, we've, we've always been a split between a consumer base and then a business-to-business contract customer. And so that business has been pretty much cut by 90% this year to an extent. It's a different product as well. So in the past, I would say the past five years, we've really grown, that side of the business was always a big part for us. So we've allowed our customers to kind of, that customer to dictate a lot of what our catalog looked like. And this year, since, since the pandemic has taken hold, the catalog has completely changed. And so we've tried to respond to that really quickly and adjust the the catalog to fit the needs of what our customer, current customer looks like.
1: What are some of those adjustments that you made? Like, what are you offering now that maybe you weren't before because of COVID?
2: It's just less contract seating, contracts, you know, furniture for our, our... We've been a big... Like, the startup community has been, like, one of our biggest customer bases. So there's probably not a, a startup in Silicon Valley, though. Like, we have not furnished part a portion of their headquarters. I mean, we just early on had a style that really resonated there. And so we've kind of gotten away from that a little bit this year, all the while maintaining that we hope that comes back at some point in the future. We've kind of shifted towards more consumer-friendly fabrics, materials, styles, silhouettes. Um, I mean, we're not, I mean, it's important to listen to your customer. It's also important to lead them towards what you feel like the brand represents. So I think for us, I mean, given supply chains, this can be a slow-moving ship when it comes to uh, onboarding new products and getting it in stock and getting it to market. Uh, we've just changed a lot around more sofas and lounge chairs and um you know something that you might imagine in your own house as opposed to something you might imagine in the Google yeah. headquarters walk in.
1: So as a founder when you kind of take a let's say covid's kind of like a gut punch you know to a lot of founders you're an optimistic person i think most founders are how do you stay resilient what do you do do you have a routine or a thought process or a you know what do you do to stay positive? through tough times?
2: I think positivity and optimism are certainly really important, but so is being realistic around protecting your business and putting up safeguards and and things like that that can help you kind of sleep at night and ensure that things will be around in 12 months. I mean, we made some decisions earlier in the year around increasing our reserve funds and things like that, given this year, just saw the writing on the wall and that's helped us maintain a lot. Of, I mean, Cause I mean, if you think about a lot of companies out there, all of a sudden revenue drops by 80%. If you're not prepared for yeah. three months of that you're. it's hard to be positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are some things that we've done that help us kind of stay ahead of, of the doom and gloom out there. But I mean, yeah, this is on a personal level. I think I find exercise to be and diet to be like super important. I know the days that go by that I, I don't get out there and, and, and work up a sweat. Like I kind of feel depressed. So Those things are are certainly you know taking care of yourself are certainly very important. But I mean, this year, I mean, honestly, like people that are not talking about how challenging it has been, like I just don't believe you. Like I just (laughs) feel like bullshit on that. You know, there have been days this year I wake up and I'm like, not another day of this. Like we can't travel. I'm not, and I'm not. We're still doing fine, but like you know, I I try to remember like you know where we are in this thing. Let's make sure that we you know we take care of each other. We lift each other up. We Try to do the best we can and and see things through. But but yeah, I think it's 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 uh, being realistic and surrounding yourself with positive people, taking care of yourself, and take care of those around you.
1: I like this idea that or um, what you shared with us about um, a reserve. I think that's really interesting. So you basically, as you run your business, you've always held an amount of reserve cash so that you can go through tough times. What do you think, what advice would you have for founders that are building businesses and they're like, hmm, a reserve, maybe I should have that. <laughs> what, how many months of runway do you think is, um, or how many months of runway maybe have you used as a rule of thumb
2: in the past? To be honest with you, very early on, I, I mean, I would put like in the first two years, I, I think I held like two years, Worth of worth of runway? That's
1: incredible.
2: <laughs> but like, I was like very frugal, and we would we would really try to uh, as a company. I mean, in that point in time, you know, you have a it's it's not only the business, but it's also you know, it's just me and then like you know, my first hire, or just a couple of us, and then you realize this is a real thing that could actually have legs. And then, but I think there's something about that that like in you can call it a rainy day fund. I call it a pandemic a global meltdown fund, survival fund. Yeah. Survival fund. After you test a concept and you can prove that it's successful and starts to generate a certain amount of cash flow that you can start to siphon off from. I mean it doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense to a lot of people, but for me it just it helps us sleep better at night when we plan mm-hmm. around things. I, I would say that one of the other sides in the past is it's been difficult to make some hard choices when you know that you have uh, cash sitting there for it's harder to cut uh, on the rent in New York if we, when our lease is up and we know we can continue to try things out and, you know, explore our options and, and new channels. But I just think that it's, I think it's really, I think I, the Warren Buffett quote that like when the tie goes out, you can see who's wearing pants. Uh, <laughs> I think that, yeah. like, I was like, I do that. I've been wearing pants. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm wearing pants. Look, yeah. no. Yeah, I mean, I I just think that's fascinating. Something that hasn't really been covered on the show is this kind of idea of a reserve. And I think that's because a lot of founders, um, you know, that raise venture capital are used to kind of operating off of like a six-month runway, you know, um, and using that to fundraise the next round. And that can be really dangerous. I know for sure with my own business, I, I had at least a six-month reserve plus the six months needed to raise. Um, it was terrifying to me to have the reason for, you know, your business going under being because you ran out of cash, like what? No, that's never going to happen to me. So I, I, I can, you know, I totally get where you're coming from. And I think it's pretty awesome that you've had such a, you know, great mentality around having a reserve or survival fund so that your business, you know, can thrive in times when it's tough.
2: Not saying that, um, things won't get thrown at us in the future and it they could, could sink the ship but it certainly helps with with uh, planning and, and growth and like you said i'm it, sleeping better at night is, is a good thing
1: yeah very important there's enough to keep you up at night you don't need to have cash flow
2: isn't? my kids, my kids will do that for me yep.
1: right right so growing a business involves a lot of personal and uh professional growth how have you personally grown as a leader
2: i think of myself more as a um as a servant leader um than i am someone that kind of walks into a room. And I don't know that a lot of the leaders deal with this. I mean, I happen to be where I am in this position and try to lead the team here where the direction I think we're going. I mean, there's often like at this point in the life cycle of a business where you kind of feel like, Hey, you know, why aren't we at this revenue band? And why aren't we, you know, doing 200 million in revenue or whatever? Like, maybe I haven't led the team well enough. Maybe I'm not the right person for the job. And a lot of times that's true. I think for me, it, I take a lot of pride in like the development and the growth of the the staff that's here. I mean, I have a lot of friends that run companies and we talk often and try to engage in difficult conversations around our own deficiencies and struggles. And and to be honest, like, uh, it's competitive out there. And you're always kind of looking over your shoulder and wondering if you're you're capable of taking things to the next level and doing it. I think as a leader, I'm, I'm pretty much an open book when it comes to like, being honest around what's happening in the business and maybe to a fault. I always thought it was too fault. And then all staff always tells me that like, they'll go to the moon and back for, for anything that we ask, which is, so I don't know what that tells you. I haven't read a lot about leadership. <laughs> and I mean, I have, but like, I don't, nothing s- sticks out specifically. I just feel like uh, doing others as, as they would do to you and try to kick ass and take names and work hard and show it in your own behavior
1: yeah, one of the things that we mentioned earlier when we spoke was um, this value in job creation that companies within the private sector have the ability to to do. And you just mentioned helping, you know, your your employees build careers at your company. Um, can you kind of go into, you know, why, how you view, you know, this job creation as a company and what you feel like your responsibility is as a founder of a company?
2: I'm a capitalist, and whatever that means these days, I feel, and I'm. I'm not getting political here, but like, I feel like the last at least 10 years as I've been doing this, um, there's so much about like, just taking for yourself the hyper individualization of everything in culture, you know, me, me, me more for me, more for everybody else. And I think business leaders and owners and those that are responsible for, or that that are growing businesses have a responsibility to kind of give back to the community. And when you talk about job creation, like that is, thats The single most, the single biggest value add that I think that we have, that I have, um, for what we're doing here. And it's not like I'm going out there and trying to be the Uber and hire a bunch of people that make minimum wage, um, because you could argue for job creation there too. But like, I've really tried to say, like, hey, we're going to give great jobs to people that work for this company, and they're going to love working here because we're going to create a great environment. They're going to get healthcare. They're going to get profit sharing. They're going to get benefits above and beyond, not because of other people are doing this or they're not, but because I feel like it's the right thing to do. And I think that if more business owners took that attitude, and we're able, not everybody's able to, I mean, like, you know, a lot of companies don't have the revenue, the cash flow to to do it. But I mean, if we're able to do something like that, I feel like we have a responsibility to do it. And so for me, I found as much, and I don't want to bullshit you either about like, it's not nice to make money, because that's also a lovely thing, taking some great vacations and, you know, have a nice house and whatever else. But like, that really, at the end of the day, is something that I find a lot more joy in um, than just accumulating wealth or anything like that. So I have a young woman that started with us six or seven years ago, At 24. She just turned, I think, 30, 31, and bought a house last year in a great neighborhood here in, in Florida and Jacksonville. And like, that just was like awesome to see that kind of thing happening. And, and um, I'm happy to be able to, to create a, a company that's able to help people achieve those types of things.
1: Yeah, I'm building a company that people want to stay at for that many years. I mean, typically, you know, you see people go to a job and they're there for two years, maybe, you know, yeah, or I don't, two or
2: three. Yeah, I, I think in like the startup world, and it's nothing wrong with like trying to secure financial security for you and yours. I think that that's mm-hmm. not a bad thing. I think that is certainly the, the predominant narrative is, you know, what, what's your valuation? What did you exit? Did you get options, you know? What was your stock worth? And like, I I think just like the company has grown slowly and things haven't happened overnight. Like nothing happens overnight. So like, let's build something meaningful and lasting. I think that that that's one of the reasons people enjoy working here. Now I would say like, you know, you want to talk about back to challenges again this year, like remote working is crap. It's terrible. (laughs) Like, and I, I think there are some people that are a few people here that have like excelled, but for the most part, like it stinks not be around people. And working together. And I mean, my style, you want to talk about leadership or managing, is really like managing by walking around. It's like a real thing, right? So, like, hey, you know, Emily, how are you doing today? Like, how's your dog, Ralph? And, you know, what'd you guys do this weekend? And how's that new project coming along? Show me what you got. I mean, that's like, that's how it works in the last five months. It's been like crickets around here. So, um, that's been, it's been not as much fun. And I think yeah, I- fun at work is important, you know? So, we're kind of missing that. And there's no amount of Zoom meetings it's going to make things uh, as they are when you're surrounded by people.
1: You're like, I want to bring the brand back, you know, like, so I know that you work with your wife and there's a lot of couples out there. I think that are thinking about, you know, working with their spouse, especially during COVID, you know, you're stuck with the person in your house and you're like, yeah. hmm, should we build something together? Um, what advice do you have for couples that are thinking of going into business together and how do you balance work with relationships?
2: First piece of advice i would give would be to choose your spouse or partner very well before you get to that point <laughs> and try to make sure that you like each other cuz that is probably the key ingredient right and i think for us i don't want to candy candy coat it maybe cut that sugar coat sugar coat it, it. candy coat it
1: there you go uh
2: i don't want to i don't want to sugar coat it but um you know we get along really well and have have for a long time and we i think one of the important things is to really divide your responsibilities and, um, make sure that if there is crossover into those areas, like one of you has certainly the, um, the final say when it comes to things. cause we do disagree on a lot of things at the end of the day, I'm the CEO of the company and I have responsibilities and people that are direct reports to me that are not to her. She has reports to her that are not mine. So there are oftentimes I'm like, Hey, I think you're handling this wrong. She's like, well, you can go back to your office if you'd like. And I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she, you know, you know, we'll get into it from time to time, but. But yeah, I think it's important to set boundaries. Also, uh, you know, we have, like I mentioned earlier, we have two small children and, you know, when we're home, it's, we try not to talk about it too much. I mean, we certainly do. I mean, a lot of companies are like, we have a strict rule. When we come home, we don't talk about, you know, work. We do. We talk about work. It's hard not to. So, but I think it's important to know when to turn it on and turn it off if it's kind of getting in the way of, of your family and in a relationship because there's not much more than, important than that. But yeah, I think setting boundaries and then knowing when to say when and making sure that, that your personality types are compatible. I mean, I know a lot of couples that have wonderful marriages and, you know, par- or partnerships and they, they, they swear they could never work together. And I think it's important to know that going into it.
1: Right. So if you already think that, it's probably not a <laughs> good idea. This is
2: on, we're on the edge. Or the, we've, we've gotten this formula that works for us and doesn't include being together, uh, you know, nine to five, then I put that on the back burner.
1: Right. But if you've survived COVID together and you're still doing good after being a quarantine for so many months, then maybe you got a chance. No doubt. (laughs) Um, this has been really fun. Do you have any kind of final advice for aspiring entrepreneurs or business leaders?
2: We talked about this a little bit. I think that there are concepts in there that are great ideas that require a lot of capital to, to see to fruition and test and figure out if it's something that's possibility. I think one of the things that that I always talk to people about is is, is making sure that that you're patient. You, you test and try things and see what works and what doesn't. Because I mean, what entrepreneur, I mean, does, I don't care how big the company is. I mean, if you talk to Jeff Bezos, if you look at the history of Apple or any of the, the big four or five tech players, like they were different things at different times. And they were able to, to pivot and change. And I know that's a, that's a buzzword these days, but that's because it should be. And um, I would say just be patient. Um, nothing happens overnight. Work hard and, and um, stay lean no matter if you're funded or not. You know, I, like I said earlier, like we're, we're like a dinosaur in like digital first furniture companies when it comes to like the history of, of this vertical. And um, so just, just take it one day at a time and, and don't think that happens, success happens overnight because it takes years. And yeah, so I think that that's, that's one of the things. So just be patient and, um, and, uh, and work hard and things will happen over time.
1: Slow and steady is, is how you guys did it. And you've found incredible success. So um, I really appreciate you sharing your incredible story and journey on the show
0: today. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you so much. Appreciate it.